Good evening. Good to see everybody. I'm Stacy Tyson. Seth asked if um, I wanted him to introduce me, and, and I said, no, uh, I think I know almost everybody here, and if you don't know me, the less you know, probably the better off it is for you. So, 2 Thessalonians, if you'll open up to 2 Thessalonians, we're going to get into some of Paul's uh, teaching tonight, and, it, and it's kind of interesting. Uh, this is a series on the doctrine of hell. And the really interesting thing is uh, that word does not show up in any of Paul's letters. Uh, Paul doesn't use any of the words that Jesus uses to talk about this concept uh, in both uh, the parts that I've taught and what Seth's taught. Uh, As you probably know, one of Jesus' favorite words for hell is Gehenna. Uh, In fact, more often than not, when you see Jesus talking about hell... Uh, He's using the Aramaic word Gehenna. It's a trash heap outside of Jerusalem that was always on fire, burning day and night. And it was a very graphic, vivid picture for those people that Jesus taught about the afterlife without him. And so he used that word over and over again. In a couple of places, he uses the word Hades, um, which is the Greek word. It just generally means the place of the dead. Uh, in fact, in the parable that Seth taught on the rich man and Lazarus, the word that Jesus uses there is Hades, the place of the dead. And you, you can see that both Lazarus uh, and the rich man, they're in the place of the dead. They're in very different parts of it, uh, but it's just generally the place of the dead. I've often wondered, why does Paul not even use those words? Now, let me say this. Even though he doesn't use the words, he definitely talks about the concept. And the passage we're going to look at tonight, he gives us a very... Um, pointed description of eternity and and what it means for people who do not belong to Jesus. So even though the word is not there in his letters, the concept is, and that's what we want to look at tonight. And I've I've thought a lot about why does, I wonder why Paul doesn't uh, use the same terminology as Jesus does. Why does he not talk about hell and whatnot? And there's probably multiple reasons. I have no idea. Uh, Just a couple of things that come to mind is, uh, the term Gehenna would have communicated nothing to the people that Paul was sent to, uh, largely, predominantly uh, Gentile people that he's going to be dealing with that are not living in the land of Israel. That word would not have communicated much to them, more than likely. Uh, also, the word Hades in Greek, it simply means the place of the dead. This is kind of a neutral idea. And Paul, I think, wants to be very specific. I'm not talking about a neutral idea here. When you die, you're going to one of two places. Uh, Your your destiny is leading you in one of two uh, different final determinations, and you need to know what that is. And so in several passages, he describes things that are going on uh, with this concept that we would call hell, uh, for the lack of a better word. And so uh, 2 Thessalonians, if you'll look there, let me read the passage. And then I want you to kind of have this passage swirling around in the back of your head or in forefront of your thoughts. And then we're just going to kind of walk through it uh, verse, a couple of verses at a time and tie it into some things that have already been taught and also kind of look forward to some things that we're going to touch on a little bit later. Uh, Second Thessalonians, uh, I'm going to start in verse 3. I'm going to read it and then I'll go back and give a little bit of the historical background for this letter so you can understand what's going on. A lot of you probably know it. But 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, uh, Paul says this, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers 
as it is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for, for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you and the churches of God for your steadfastness of faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Now, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom for which you are also suffering, since indeed God, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give thanks for the word. Father, we thank you for your word. And uh, tonight, as we've all been probably running around today, um, just trying to get here with all the roads closed and everything, uh, our mind can be pulled and stressed in a thousand different directions. And we just pray that in the next couple of minutes, you'll give us your peace and your calmness, uh, especially me. Uh, Give peace to my thoughts sharpness to my speech so that what I say will be useful and profitable for those who hear. And uh, in the end, I pray that as we all come to your word to learn, illuminated, empowered by your Holy Spirit, that you would fill us with every desire to pursue you, to know you more deeply and love you more fully. And so we ask all this for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. This passage has... Uh, almost every part of Seth's uh, definition of hell that he's been using over the last several weeks. Uh, It's here on the screen behind me, and I'll just uh, read it to remind you of what we're talking about. Uh, Seth's defined hell this way. Hell is a place of eternal conscious torment separated from the felt presence of God and His grace. In fact, uh, I would even go so far as to say this passage we just read Uh, The very central aspect of what Paul is talking about in this passage is what I would call being excluded from the presence of God. Uh, Maybe more specifically, although he doesn't use this terminology in this passage, he does elsewhere in his letters. I'll share some of that in just a second. It's the idea of being excluded for the kingdom, from, from the kingdom. And I think in Paul's letters, that is the way he chooses to talk about this concept of hell because he's coming at it from kind of a positive perspective in the sense of, listen, the kingdom is coming. You can't stop it. You can't slow it down. One day it is going to define reality. Amen? Amen. Jesus is going to return, and he is going to establish his kingdom. And not everybody is going to make it into that kingdom. (laughs) 
Many people will not make it into that kingdom. But here, let me tell you this. The kingdom is so awesome. Why would you want to do anything to jeopardize not being part of it? And so Paul uses this terminology in his letters that I think he, he in one way or another, adapts from Jesus. Because Jesus, in the parable of the sheep and the goats that, that Seth has already taught on, uh, in the middle of that, the, the king, Jesus, says to the sheep, that he's welcoming into his presence. This is in Matthew twenty-five thirty-four. Uh, the king says to those sheep, he says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Hear that? Again, this is talking about a, a final judgment. And some of the people who are going to make it into the kingdom, they, uh, according to Jesus' words, they are going to inherit the kingdom that has been prepared for them since the foundation of the world. When you look into Paul's letters, he has several places, and I'm going to mention just a couple of them, where he talks about the inverse of this, the opposite of this, and that is uh, types of people who will not inherit the kingdom. And let me give you one of the most famous ones. Uh, Galatians five nineteen through 21. This is the passage right before the fruits, fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 19, 5, 19 through 21. And Paul says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Interesting, we had the uh, responsive reading from the Heidelberg Catechism about adultery. That is in every one of these lists. Immorality, sexual immorality, sensuality. 520, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. I wish you hadn't put that in there. Uh, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and other things like these. So the list could go on and on, right? But you get the idea. And this is the main point. Listen, he says, I warn you, as I have warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You hear that? Really interesting. He doesn't say these people are going to hell. He says that I think in a more powerful way. These people are not going to inherit the kingdom They're going to be excluded from the kingdom because their lifestyle, the way they've been living, shows that they are people who are are being shaped into a type of person where even if they were in the kingdom, they would hate it, right? Because all these things that they're doing that they love to do now, those things aren't going to be present in the kingdom. So why would you want to go there? And let me say also this, uh, Seth has touched on this very pointedly. it's not just that they're being excluded, it's also a punishment. It's a punishment to these people. And we're going to see this in the passage tonight. So it's not just an absence of God's goodness, it's also a place of punishment uh, where the Lord actively puts them there. And we'll talk about that more in just a second. In Ephesians uh, 6, Paul, I'm sorry, it's Ephesians 5, I better put my glasses on. Ephesians 5, 5, very uh, similar statement, much more to the point. Paul says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. That's a very powerful statement. Um, Paul, in, in most of these letter, in most of these lists, he will mention uh, covetousness, right? Desiring the things that aren't yours. You know, the, this is the, the idea of, Always needing more, needing more, needing more. You know, the famous statement, I can't remember who it was, one of the famous uh, rich men of the 20th century asked, uh, what is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. 
Right? That's the idea of covetousness that falls on this list. People who can't be satisfied, who are always yearning for something else, they're not fit for the kingdom. These lists scare me. I don't know about y'all. These are very scary lists. Now, I belong to Jesus, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to make it into the kingdom, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done for me. And I'm going to talk about that in just a second. But nevertheless, I read these lists, and it really makes the hair on the back of my head go up because I think, you know, I still love some of these things. These are things, things that I still love. And what that puts in perspective for me is, oh, gosh, that means these things have got to be weeded out. <laughs> right? um, I, I really appreciate having a father who, um, for the lack of a better word, put the fear of God into me as I was growing up. Because there would be often times that he would teach me lessons that I just needed to know. Right. Because Tyson's don't do these types of things. And man, they were painful lessons. But what it did is it rooted everything out of me that wasn't a Tyson, at least the way my father defined it, so that I could be filled with all the good things of what a Tyson is. It's what the father God's doing with us. He's just rooting out all of these things that are not like Christ to make room in us for all those things that are like Christ. And so um, here. These lists, nevertheless, I think they're sobering even for believers to ask ourselves, are we pursuing these things? Do we love these things? Or are we pursuing the things that bring pleasure to the Lord Jesus? And so in, these larger, um, in the larger scope of Paul's works, uh, it's pretty clear that even though he doesn't use the term hell or Hades or Gehenna or any of those things, he does describe a place in eternity that is outside of the presence of God. Uh, it is a place of torment. And it is a place of anguish. It's a place of punishment. And we see that in the passage tonight. So let's get into 2 Thessalonians now. Let's start to go through this passage. Uh, In verses 3 and 4, you see Paul gives thanks uh, for this church. And if I could just very briefly remind you of how this church came into being. This uh, group of believers started during Paul's second missionary journey. If you remember, in the book of Acts, Paul has already been on one missionary journey. Uh, he, he comes back, reports to the early church of what's happened. Then he goes on a second missionary journey. And it's on this second missionary journey that he's preaching in the city of Thessalonica. It's, uh, if you're from the south, it's Thessalonica. Um, uh, the Greek pronunciation is Thessalonica, but Paul was from the south, so we'll say Thessalonica. Uh, everybody knows what we're talking about. He, um, he, he winds up there. And as is his custom, he goes to the synagogue. He proclaims Jesus and the resurrection and the kingdom, teaching the Jewish people there along with the, with the Gentiles who were at the synagogue, who were God-fearers, who were, who were pursuing the one true God. Uh, he teaches them, and you remember it stirs up so much trouble that he, uh, the, the new believers there and the people who are with him, they have to move on to the next city. Uh, the Jews in the town go to the council and stir up all kind of trouble. He moves on, and as he moves on, he winds up in Berea. You remember a very famous passage uh, where he's teaching again on Jesus and the kingdom and the resurrection. And the Bereans, do you remember what the Bereans are doing? They're searching the scriptures to see if these things are so. Very different from the people who are in the synagogue. They had already made up their mind that these things are not true, and we've got to run Paul out and get rid of him as quickly as we can. I was watching a documentary this week. Uh, there was a, a lieutenant general in the army, and he had a great quote. He said, uh, it is uh, absolutely impossible to dispel ignorance when you cling to arrogance. It is impossible to dispel ignorance 
when you're clinging to arrogance. And that's what you see so many things happening in these Gospels. Paul comes with the truth and the people think they know better and therefore they're excluded from the kingdom. Um, Paul even says that at one point, that these people who have considered themselves unworthy of the kingdom of God in rejecting the gospel. So he's gone and he's preached. They've, they have um, rejected him. He's gone on to Berea. After that, he'll go to Athens and preach his great sermon in Athens. That's really an incredible uh, sermon to that culture. But the main thing is uh, that here, back in Thessalonica, there's been a great persecution. And these young believers, these new believers that have just come to the faith, even though Paul has left, now they're under the heat. Uh, they are being attacked. There are all kind of terrible things are happening because now they're following Jesus, the very person that the Jews have stirred up the whole city uh, about. And so they're, they're being persecuted. We see that in the first letter. Paul, in fact, writes to him and says, listen, y'all are examples to all the churches for your faith and love and hope and perseverance and all the rest. He repeats that here. And he, he gives his praise to them in the prayer or in recounting the way he prays for them in everything that they're going through. Uh, but then in verse 5, if you look at verse 5, notice he mentions those persecutions and afflictions specifically at the end of verse 4. Um, and he says that they're enduring in those persecutions and afflictions. In fact, in Acts, the places where the church grows the quickest and becomes the most mature is the place where there's the most suffering, right? where there's a high price to be paid for Jesus. Where, where people have it well, it's a little bit harder to pursue maturity. Seems like. That's true in our day as well. Uh, verse 5. Now, look at, look at what Paul says about what's happening here. Uh, these afflictions, these persecutions that they're going through. Verse 5, he says this. Now, this is evidence of God's righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Uh, in Acts, you remember there's a famous uh, statement where the early church is being persecuted. And Paul himself says, listen, it is through many persecutions that we will enter the kingdom of God. You remember that? In other words, Paul has got it clearly in his mind, in his theology, that when believers are suffering for the truth, for Jesus, that suffering is the very thing that God uses to perfect them for his kingdom because it's the same method that he used for Jesus. The writer of Hebrews tells us that it was Jesus' suffering that perfected him to be our high priest. Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. And that really powerful statement, even though Jesus was sinless, we know that. Nevertheless, he, he learned what it is to do exactly what God tells us to do through the things that he suffered. And because of that, he's a faithful and merciful high priest to us. So suffering is the means that God uses in his justice to make us worthy of the kingdom. But look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. Now, just, now think about that for a minute. Just stop there for just a second. Now, Paul could have just stopped there, and that would have been fine. That would have been good. But what about these people that are causing the afflictions? What about these people that are, that are tormenting these other human beings because they're following Jesus? What's going to happen to them, right? And this is one of the rare places where Paul answers that question. Let me say this. This is one of Paul's earliest letters. And sometimes um, 
I don't know that the Holy Spirit reigned Paul in as much as he did in his, in his latter letters. It, it, if you look at Paul's latter letters, it looks like he mellows in somewhat in, in the sharp way he deals with some of these issues. I'm very glad that the Holy Spirit um, inspired Paul, moved in Paul to include this passage because I think it gives us something really important that we don't talk about that much in the church because it doesn't seem to be p- politically correct. And that's this. Look at what he says in verse 6. So this is God's righteous judgment in what he's doing in this whole situation, the persecution of the uh, believers, but also in this, verse 6, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now stop right there for just a minute. Now look at that. Soak that up for just a second. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who are afflicting you. Uh, this is what Paul's saying, in a sense. There will come a day when these people who are causing the affliction, they're going to be the afflicted in God's justice. Those who are, who are persecuting God's people, there will be a day coming. And, and Paul doesn't give any of the, you know, unless they become saved, any of those things here. Now, clearly that's part of the equation. But here he's just stating it as plainly as possible. And that is, those who cause affliction on Christ's people, there's a day coming for them where they themselves will become the afflicted. And it's not at the hands of believers, we're going to see in just a second, it will be at the hands of the Lord Jesus himself. There's, a, to me, one of the most powerful statements in the book of Acts is from Paul's early life when he's still Saul. And he's gone out and he's persecuting the church. And he's headed up to Damascus. You remember up into the northern reaches of the land. He's going as far as he can to try to root out this upstart false religion that's following Jesus as the Messiah and so forth. And of course, Jesus appears to him on the road. You remember this? And blinds him. Um, and the voice comes, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? What does he say? Me. Right? Me. Saul is not persecuting Jesus directly. He is persecuting Jesus' people. But guess what? It's the same as persecuting Jesus. You follow what I'm saying? What happens to Jesus happens to his people. And what happens to the people of Jesus is some way experienced by the Lord Jesus himself. And so as his people are being persecuted, he himself is being persecuted. And who better? to set things right, than Jesus when he appears. And that's the very point that Paul's making here. That these people who are, who are causing, the affliction, uh, causing the affliction, they are going to be afflicted when Jesus returns. Now, look, look at verse 7 with me. Verse 7. And, and let me just say this as a side hand. I think men generally tend to be this way more than women, but I love good... Um, stories where the bad guy gets what he deserves. You know, you know, you don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, there is this one movie where this guy's uh, daughter is kidnapped. It's a very violent movie. I would not recommend it, except to the guys. I mean, you remember what? But this this guy's daughter is abducted and all kind of terrible things, tortured and put in difficult situations. The only problem is this guy's like a. He's been in the, some kind of special forces, CIA, and he goes around and finds every one of these men that has abducted his daughter, and he exacts 
revenge upon them, right? Now, clearly, that's an ungodly way to think about those things. But I'm watching, I'm thinking, yeah, yeah. You know, my, we, we, me and my wife watched it together. She's like, you know, now I see why you get angry at stuff like that, right? Now I can it's, it's understand part of it. There's something within us driven by the need for the bad guys to get what due to them. And guess what? Jesus is going to take care of that. He's going to take care of that. And, it, and, it's, and it's going to be in a way that comes under the justice of God. He's going to do it in the exact right way. And that, that's going to satisfy this longing that we have within us. So clearly that's going to happen. Now, look, look at verse 7 with me. Another thing is going to happen. This one's really good. Ooh. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So when Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, he's going to bring affliction to those who are afflicting his people, but he's going to bring relief to us who belong to him. Now, we could spend endless amount of time talking about that. To me, I don't know about y'all, but I think about that reality almost every day. Uh, it's one of the things that, that keeps us focused in the right direction. And that is, just as the kingdom is coming, there is a day coming when we will see Jesus face to face and he will grant us rest and relief from all of our labors and all of our afflictions and all of our sufferings that we may be going through on planet earth. Amen? Man, that keeps you looking in the right direction. Um, and it's Jesus. Jesus is the very source and author of those things. He's going to return. He returns with his mighty angels. Verse 8, look at this. This is not a very politically correct view of Jesus, by the way. I'm just going to get you ready for this. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. You see that? When Jesus comes, he's the one who's going to be the agents, the agent of this vindication. He's going to be the agent of this affliction bringing affliction on those who have afflicted his people. And, and more specifically, look at what Paul says about these people. I think this is very, very important. On those, at the very end of verse 8, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? Those who do not obey. Really interesting word. It doesn't say believe. He says obey. There is, there's a handful of passages in the New Testament, that, that talks about obedience to the gospel, obeying the truth. And I think this is a really, really important perspective for us because when we think about the gospel, I think oftentimes we only think of it as a spiritual transaction. That is, God is coming and he's offering somebody a better way of life, and that's true. He's offering eternal life and all that. But in reality, when you look at the book of Acts, Paul sees this as a proclamation of reality that demands obedience. You've got to line up with this reality or else you're going to get caught by it when it comes. In fact, in uh, Acts 17, uh, in, the God, in the message that Paul preaches in Athens shortly after, he's in Thessalonica. Uh, at the very end of this sermon that he preaches in um, Athens on Mars Hill, he concludes the message by saying this. He said, These times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed the day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this, He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. 
So here, this, this is something that's really important. These people in part come under the vengeance of Christ because they have not obeyed, they have not believed the message that has been proclaimed about him. And therefore, they remain his enemies. They remain opposed to him at every turn. Also, in that passage, notice just before Paul says that, um, right there in uh, verse 8, he says, on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not just that these people are afflicting God's people. They do not know the one true God and they do not obey the gospel. They don't heed the call to repent, to turn. That reality is defined by Jesus and by the kingdom. And by the way, if you go and look in the book of Acts, all throughout the book, Paul always preaches Jesus and the kingdom. Jesus and his resurrection and the kingdom. Jesus and the kingdom. In fact, the last couple of verses uh, in the book of Acts is Paul when he's teaching the people about Jesus and the kingdom. These things rule Paul's reality. And he wants to make sure that everybody is aware that, listen, you can't stop Jesus and you can't thwart the coming of the kingdom. So what does he tell you to do? He tells you to get right with him now. Repent. I talked about this in the first week. You've got to change the way you're thinking about everything. Anything in your life and the way you process things that is not focused on Jesus has got to be reordered, focused on him, looking to him as our king, as our savior, as the one who's going to come, set everything right. And you want to be part of that kingdom. You want to be part of that kingdom. right? And so here, Paul says that these people... Notice, they're going to be afflicted in that day. Also, you have that it's with uh, uh, fire. You see that inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance. Fire has been a key part of all of these um, judgments, particularly these final judgments that are related to hell and so forth. And so here we see it picked up again uh, in this passage. Verse 9, coming to a conclusion. He says this about these people. Boy, howdy, this one is the one that really parts your hair. Um, notice, they will suffer the punishment, there's the punishment, of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Let me read that one more time. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and of the glory of his might. I don't know how much clearer you can get than what Paul says here. Uh, Probably next week we're going to talk a little bit more about the different views on hell, some of the um, uh, false teaching that's come into the church uh, throughout history and especially in the the 20th century, Uh, different views of hell where people reject what the scriptures state plainly about it and come up with their own views. To me, this one, what Paul says here, the language is just inescapable. Notice, first of all, it is a punishment. It is something that's coming on these people. They're being punished for their disobedience to the gospel. They've been warned. And I mean, think about, think about how small a thing this is, but how big it is in the larger issue. As parents, we teach our kids to do what we ask them to do to do what we tell them to do because we're, we're doing it for their own benefit. And if they don't do it, what does a good parent do? You bring punishment. You don't allow that behavior to go on. There has to be punishment for it. And, and in one sense, punishment is meant to be remedial. It's meant to be corrective. This punishment is final. This punishment comes at the end when there's nothing else that can be done. 
The person has become such a person that nothing can be turned. And so this punishment comes upon him. And notice it's a punishment of eternal destruction. And the word that Paul uses here for destruction is one different from the word that uh, Jesus uses where he talks about destruction in these passages. This, uh, those two words, eternal, uh, in this context, it means forever, an unending um, period of time. And destruction means to be completely obliterated. As, as Seth has said several times, it's a constant unmaking. It is a constant uh, dissolution of the person, ever and ever and ever just being unmade, destroyed completely forever. Uh, but, but again, put it in the fact of eternal, and that is the idea, it doesn't have an end to it. It just goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on forever, right? Uh, I, I used to ask this question uh, to students in a class, get them thinking in a certain way. I said, let me ask you something. What if everything in your life right now just solidified the way it is and nothing ever changed from this point forward? Nothing ever changed, right? It's just kind of like you're in a perpetual groundhog day. You don't get any older. Your kids don't get any better. Your relationship with your wife doesn't get any better. Your relationship with your kids doesn't get any better. It doesn't get any worse. You know what they call that? I've only had one person give me the right answer. A guy in class one time said, God, that sounds like hell. Like, That's exactly what it is, right? It's the, it's, it's, it's the unending, relentless reality of nothing changing, ever, being completely unmade. And that's where these people find themselves. What a terrifying idea is that. Absolutely terrifying. Notice, and this is Paul's main thing. This punishment comes. It's eternal. It's an eternal destruction. But it's away from the presence of the Lord and of his glorious might. And Paul's thinking, where else would you want to be outside of the presence of Jesus? He is the very definition of all that is true and good and beautiful and glorious it, everything that's been made has been made by Him. And, and even though we see parts of it corrupted by evil and sin, all of the good things that you see in creation, they just give us a little taste of how good Jesus is. One of my favorite places to go out west in the mountains, I don't worship any more than when I'm standing out looking at just the incredible terrain of the Rocky Mountains. Some places you can go and you can see for miles. There's, there's one place where you can go as you're going into Colorado and you hold up your thumb and at the end of your thumb uh, represents about uh, uh, 15 miles and just mountain after mountain after mountain after. Just incredible, uh, breathtaking sight. And I look at those and I think, wow, and this is a fallen world. And yet it's still glorious. It's still beautiful. Why would you not want to be there? Why would you not want to be with the person who has created and sustained everything that you think is beautiful. Why would you want to reject him? That's Paul's view. Why would you do anything to reject that? And so here he says they're going to be away from his presence. And then he says this, away from the glory of his might. All throughout Paul's letters, Paul talks about the glory of God's power in terms of his salvation. You, you don't see the real glory of God's power, the, the unmistakable beauty of his power more powerfully than in the way he saved us and in the way he saved his people. Uh, you can go just look up those phrases, glory and power. I've got some things here, but we're getting short on time, so I'm not going to go through all those. Uh, but, but Paul often will mention uh, the effects of salvation in terms of his glorious power and so forth. 
And then finally, let me just uh, close out with this. If you look in verse 10, he begins to, um, he begins to close out this, this first prayer um, that, he, that he prays. Uh, so we, um, those people that are going to be afflicted, they're going to be cut off from the Lord's presence and the glory of his might. But then look at verse 10. In the day when he comes to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. If you look over to chapter 2, just, just for a second with me, I'm going to end with this. In Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul gives a contrast to these people that he's been talking about, and he does it by contrasting these people who are going to be afflicted with us, uh, believers, the brothers and sisters of the faith. And in Second Thessalonians 2.13, he says this, Now we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you. Right? God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. You see how that's almost directly opposite of these people who don't know God that he's talking about earlier. They have rejected the truth. They have not obeyed the gospel. Therefore, they've rejected the truth. We have, what have we done? We believe the truth. But even more than that, notice Paul says that we've been sanctified. We've been sanctified by the Spirit. God has done something to us through his Spirit that we can't do to ourselves. He set us apart. He's cleansed us. He's redeemed us. He's renewed us. He, he has, he has uh, given us the gift of his Spirit to indwell us. And so we see a stark contrast uh, in these uh, people that are going into the affliction as opposed to God's own children, his own people there. And then in verse 14 he says this, To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain, now look at this, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Isaiah, in the first half, you, you, you see this refrain in a couple of times. The Lord is talking about what he's about to do with Israel. And one of the things that the Israelites have done is they have exchanged the glory of God for idols and false gods and so forth. And throughout the book of Isaiah, the Lord speaks through Isaiah the prophet and says, Listen, I am Yahweh, the one true God, and I share my glory with nobody. Nobody. Now... Because of what Christ has done for us, and because of what the Holy Spirit has done to us in His sanctifying work, not only have we believed the gospel, but we are people who are one day going to share in, partake of the glory of the Lord Jesus. He's made us fit and worthy to partake of something that before Jesus, nobody was worthy to partake of. And now, we're going to partake of it. Why would you want to be excluded from that? Why would you want to cut yourself off from that? Because when you cling to ignorance, right, or when you cling to arrogance, it's very hard to dispel ignorance. And that's what these people have done. They want to obey God. They want to obey the truth. They're going to do whatever they want to do. But that's not true of us who have heard the gospel and who have received the work of God that only He can do for for us. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, there's another passage that where Paul gives this list of people who are who will not inherit the kingdom. 
And he says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral or idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Same list. They will not inherit the kingdom. But listen to this. But such were some of you. We always forget that part of that list. In the church, we always leave that off. But such were some of you. But you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Two things, I think there's only two applications for me in this whole series of messages. Number one, praise and thanks to God for the work that He's done for me, for you, for us who belong to Him to make us people who are no longer fit for hell. That's number one. Number two, great concern and sorrow for people who are still captivated in their own ignorance, who are headed there and may not even know it. Some know it, some don't. And I think we should pray constantly for those people that the Lord, through the work of His Spirit, would open the eyes of their hearts, make them tender to His call, make them realize that if they do not turn, they are going to miss out on the greatest thing that they could possibly imagine, and that is to be in the presence of Jesus, in the kingdom, and all that that means when it comes. Let me, let me pray for us. Father, we thank You for all the ways that You bless us. Thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the time we have together. And uh, in the last few minutes here, I just pray that you'll bless our time and help us to really focus on you and, and, and thanks and gratitude for all that you've done for us. For Jesus' sake, amen.